Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking and the guest of today's show is Jared Bibler. Jared is the author of Iceland's Secret, the untold story of the world's biggest con. That's quite a title, Jared. Welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate that. So today we're going to have a chat about Iceland and people would be like, what? But actually, actually, you told me before the show that there are quite some parallels and similarities and implications with what's going on with some of the cons that we are seeing, namely FTX, for instance. But tell us this story about Iceland to start with. Well, let me give you a thought experiment first. Um, yeah. Uh, on the 27th, you wrote an article called uh, All They Told You About Money Printing is Really, Really Wrong, which was an excellent article. I'm going to, you have to correct me if I misquote you. But the piece of it that I wanted to focus on was that commercial banks and governments, but let's focus on commercial banks. Commercial banks create real economy money, like via loans, like mortgages, car loans, credit card debt, whatever. Now imagine if, just a thought experiment, all the major commercial banks in your country stopped creating real economy money that way. And they directed all of those new loan funds, every, every single euro or whatever currency you want, dollar, every single currency, they started directing all of that money into offshore shell companies. And they started using that real economy money, which is now no longer real economy money, I think we can agree. Um, those shell companies offshore become the holders and the owners of their own equity. Okay. That's Iceland starting in late 2007. So well before the Lehman moment and all that stuff that happened in 08. The commercial banks effectively, they had so many of their own shares to offload at the end of each quarter that Enron style, they would stuff them in whatever envelope they could off the balance sheet and they would use their own money creation ability to finance the purchases. Oh my God. Okay. Let me see. Let me see if I got this yep. roughly right, but we need yes. to explain piece by piece. Yes. So we are in Iceland. We are before the great financial crisis. It's right. uh, 2007 roughly. Yep. yep. And now, you have Icelandic banks, right, now, Jared? And yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go, you're living in Iceland and you have a great job and your wife has a great job, good salaries. You have a small house. You pay all your mortgage payments. You want a slightly bigger house. You go to, and you're an employee of the bank, right? So you have even more preferential credit terms. You go to the bank and you say, um, I'd, li uh, I'd like a, a mortgage, a slightly larger mortgage to, to get into this other house. Mm -hmm. You also have money to put down, all that. You know, you meet all the criteria. And they say, no. And you think, that, that's weird. But then you find out later, nobody gets a mortgage. They, they stopped. There was no lending happening in the domestic economy, really. Uh, starting sometime in, I don't know, I haven't looked at this graph in a while, but this is late 07. The banks stop lending at all into the housing sector. Just, it goes off a cliff. Okay, so go back to you. You can walk us through it. No, I was, I was thinking, okay, so I'm in Iceland. It's pre-great financial crisis. I'm trying to get a loan from a bank. I'm trying to get credit creation on my balance sheet. I want yep. to actually yep. spend more money that, that I have. I want new money being created, leveraged on my future cash flow, salaries, earnings, whatever they are. And the bank goes like, nope, because we're busy doing something else. So yes. Jared, now 
walk us through what this <laughs> else is because it sounds pretty interesting. Okay, so I'll, I'll take you to I'll take you flash you into a personal story. Uh, Two thousand nine. Imagine um, you, imagine you're the invest first investigator at the newly hired by the regulator. So that's the I don't know the SMR whatever they're called today. You know whatever FCA whatever they're called regulator in your country. You come into the regulator. They say. You know, and now now the system has crashed. Now the supermarket shelves are bare. Now the inflation is twenty, thirty percent. Now the super, um, yeah. Now now your mortgage payment has doubled, etc. We can get into all that, but okay. Now things are very dire, and you come in there, and um, what's greeting you is is a is a letter, and the letter is six months old or four months old, and the letter is from the stock exchange to the regulator, and the letter says, "Hey, we noticed some strange trading behavior." We noticed that just three days before each of these huge banks collapsed. Now the banks, by the way, are together eleven times bigger than the country's GDP. <laughs> um, each one is the size of Enron. Enron's back in the news now because it's famous, right? It's, it was huge news in the U.S. There was a a two hundred person task force of FBI agents and SEC people and DOJ people who spent like years unlocking that thing. Iceland had three Enrons but with 1,000th the population. Um, and so now you come into the regulator and they give you this sheet and it's, it's a three-page letter. And the letter says, um, yeah, we noticed some strange trading on these three days. We noticed that each of these banks had one trader. We think he was using the bank's money. And that trader bought every share that came across the public stock exchange uh, so that the price wouldn't go down, so that the price never dropped. So any, any seller who comes to the exchange with a share of the bank's stock there's a buyer there. The buyer is the bank with the bank's proprietary funds. But for just for those three days. Then you start maybe digging in. You crack open your Excel spreadsheet. You get some more data. And you realize that not, not this has not been going on for just three days, but actually it's been going on for like two weeks back to back to Lehman. But then you're like, oh, let me find out when this went. Maybe Maybe a little further back. Maybe this went back in the summer. So you go back maybe six months, but you see that actually for the whole six months as the 2008 was, was unfolding, they were doing the same thing, all three banks. So then you, then you get really bold and you say, I'm going to go back five years. And you see that basically the pattern had, had always been going in some form. The volumes that the banks bought of themselves went up the more trouble they got into. But through all those years, they're doubling their balance sheet. They're, they're doubling in size. They're going out to Europe, to bigger banks, bigger entities all over the world and borrowing to lever themselves up. And they're pointing to their great share price performance as a reason that you should trust them. But in the background, they're creating that share price out of thin air. Now imagine that those three banks are so much bigger than everything else in the country's economy that they become the whole stock market or, or virtually so. So they become 75% of the market index. And tangentially, maybe even, it's like when they crash, the market loses 97% within a few months. So that's the story. Oh my God, Jared. So, so let me try and think how this would work mechanically. <laughs> yes, please. So, so every time a bank makes a loan, they literally create money out of thin air. They credit right. an account of somebody yep. and they create new deposits for the system on the liability side. Now, if this deposit ends up at the same bank, it's fair and square. You created new assets, you create a new deposit, you're squared. Any deposit end back, uh, ends back at your balance sheet, that's all fine. If the deposit doesn't end at your balance sheet, then you need to find some source of funding somewhere, right? That's how it works. Mm -hmm. 
Now, there are three major large banks in Iceland, you said, like they're really big, they dominate the market. So it's a pretty closed and small system overall. What they yes. can do is they can credit their own traders account, basically, and say, hey, there you go. This is new money being created. This is your funding. Well, then, what they can do, so what they can do is because they're still much smaller than like, let's say a Deutsche Bank, not to pick on them, but we should pick on them because they were one of the sure. biggest, biggest lenders, uh, to Iceland. Um, and, uh, you know, when you're especially smaller bank growing and everyone perceives your country as, as clean and, and wonderful and green, um, the Germans lent a lot into those banks. So for, for at least a few years, they could basically tap as much international cash and also another macroeconomic thing you might find interesting is that the currency was newly floated in 2002. So before that, you couldn't trade ISK. You had, you had to go there as a visitor and buy some physical ISK. But after 2002, you could trade it. There was, you know, there was FX pairs on it. So that meant there was suddenly demand because this was a high inflation, high yielding currency. So, and this was during the Greenspan, you know, 1% years. So there was a lot of search for yield. So there's a lot of money flooding in for a short time, a few years, money flooding into the country, pushing up the exchange rate. And so for just a couple of years, anyway, three, four years, those banks could borrow almost virtually unlimited amounts of funds. So they had cash on hand to actually buy their own shares. And any, mm -hmm. any seller who comes to the market, the bank has borrowed cash, it can use that's a real trade. That's really money out the door. In the last year, they each spent around 1 billion US dollars just in this tiny stock market in Iceland because they had to buy virtually the whole market volume or a significant piece of the market volume. But this was done via external funding, you're saying. So this is money the, flowing into Iceland. The, 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 the money to finance the buying, yes, I believe so. However, imagine you're that prop trader and you've spent whatever, hundreds of millions that quarter. Um, and in many cases, by the way, you are directly in contact with the top people in the bank, CEO, daily reports. Hey boss, we bought so much, you know, we bought this much, price didn't move, that kind of stuff. Um, you, uh, you now have a problem as the head of the prop desk because you're sitting on your whole port, your whole trading portfolio, which is supposed to be like good trades that you did. Your whole trading portfolio. Now, this is where it's like FTX. FTX is sitting on its own <laughs> FTT token as its balance sheet. You know, um, Icelandic bank is sitting on its its own now. You know, maybe five ten percent of its own outstanding share shares have been bought just that quarter. Now it's sitting on them. It's never announced this to the market as a buyback or anything, so it can't dematerialize those shares. What's it going to do? It's got to get rid of them somehow before the auditors come in. As sleepy as they are, they, there are auditors in Iceland. And so um, what are they going to do? So this is where the loan piece comes in. Because now if you're a bank, you can now loan someone money to buy those shares from you. This is also very FTX-like, right? So the, the, uh, the loan book over time, especially in the last year, it just becomes... BS loans to companies you've never heard of. And the loan is a hundred percent collateralized by the shares. 
Okay, that's how it goes. Yeah. So they first started with external funding, a bit like, and we're trying starting to draw parallels with FTX, right? So basically, FTX attracted new customers as as the yeah. crypto world was was growing very fast, yeah. and they attracted a few billions of customers. And this yeah. is external funding, uh, yeah. basically speaking, right? And so, and then they started using this external. Uh, customers misappropriating funds here and there as we are figuring out today. That's how it started. And in Iceland, the parallel is the same. So external money from Europe, maybe, or the US was funding Iceland uh, because they were looking for yields and a stable yep. um, country where to invest. So banks started using this money and misappropriated, one can say, external funding by buying back their shares without announcing it to the public. So they were basically supporting their own shares. And then at some point, they wanted some credit creation mechanisms to back that up. So they were lending to shell companies, which were basically non-existent businesses, 100% collateralized by the same shares yes. that they had bought. Yeah. So their business as a bank over time becomes completely corrupted into this mechanism. So because a bank's assets is its loan book. It's supposed to be good loans. You're expecting to get profit. You're expecting to get get paid back, you know, on those. The, these loans would be, they had no periodic P&I payments. There was no monthly payment on these loans. They would make a loan that would be like a five-year bullet loan so that all the principal and interest came due on the last day. And some of those loans could be for $200 million, like dollars in one go. Oh, God. And so imagine if this was legit, imagine if an investor came into a, to, to a Nordic bank with $200 million and wanted to buy equity. I mean, that would be in the FT, right? That'd be, you know... So-and-so comes in, right? These, these things were never announced. Um, so, Jared, be, before we jump into what happened when the whole thing blew up, can you tell me how do you see the parallels with FTX precisely? So the, the Icelanding bank activity at the beginning and at, towards the end of the scheme, how does it resemble exactly what FTX was doing at the beginning and towards the end of the scheme? Well, I'm not an FTX expert. I've been following it a bit on Twitter. and um, But I want to make another uh, parallel for you. Uh, like I said, at first, the, um, at first the, the, these were big lenders who should have been sophisticated, like Deutsche Bank and, and other um, you know, pension funds and so on, yeah. who were lending into the, those banks. But after 2006, there was actually some exposure of the problems of Icelandic banks in the mainstream press outside of Iceland. So there was actually the IMF did a big report on Iceland, summer of 06. And uh, there was a couple of, I think Merrill Lynch did an analysis, Danske Bank. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, how are these banks making money? Um, you know, look at how they're funding themselves. They, they had to roll over at that point in 06. They had to roll over a whole GDP of Iceland worth of funding, <laughs> you know, with it, by, by the middle of the next year. You know, oh, they had God. to roll over like... I don't know, 15 billion. When, when they collapsed, they were $182 billion together, their balance sheets. Um, so, but, so that was the time when maybe a collapse could have happened. Then they, and then this is FTX like, then they went retail. They used EU legislation, which allowed them to open passbook savings accounts in various countries. And then they collected retail deposit money to keep the funding base growing and to keep themselves in business. Now, those people were bailed out in most cases by the deposit insurance. Um, so that's not like FTX, obviously. 
but the but the sort of ch chasing money wherever you can get it to <laughs> to inflate your scheme is is very FTX like I think. Yes, so I think at the beginning getting customer money, growing the business um, via a bunch of. Uh, advertising, for instance, where FTX was very strong and Iceland was instead very strong with finding legal loopholes and having yields that were very attractive for foreign investors, right? That's why yeah, yeah. I remember in the Netherlands back then, it was quite a thing to allocate into an Icelandic bank account because it was yielding much more than your Euro bank account, right? right. And it looked like the currency was pegged or it was even appreciated. It was appreciated. Basis it was. Against the Euro. So what yeah. a fantastic deal. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people did that. Uh, on top of it, later on comes the basically the lending uh, collateralized by your, your own pumped up collateral, basically your own shares. And that's very similar to what FTX was doing towards Alameda Research, for instance. So basically yep. lending uh, <laughs> collateralized by their own a, tokens. A token, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a very similar story. Yeah. And then, and then it, it falls apart. Now, before we go into the falls apart um, sure. section, Jared, just a reflection from my end. These things keep happening over and over again, and we keep forgetting. I mean, I tweeted the other day, in 1989, the Imperial Palace of Tokyo was valued more than the entire state of California. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. And, th and that was the credit, the, the private sector bubble, private real estate bubble in Japan. We did, again, a similar story in 2006, 2007 in the US, where people had five mortgages, uh, no income, no jobs uh, yeah. kind of mortgages. I mean, we keep doing these things over and over again, and we did yep. it in Iceland. Now we do it in, F in FTX in a very similar fashion. Yeah. Why is that the case? Um, I'm 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 sad to say this, and this is just I'm maybe a bit like Donald Trump, and that the last thing someone said to me is the is the thing I repeat. But I was just before we went on, I was having a conversation with someone who is an Icelandic uh, citizen who lives out. She, uh, she lives in Asia. And she's kind of like, uh, because actually there's big news, big news two weeks ago today, I believe. Um, there was an auditor's report. One of these banks is being privatized again now this year. And this, the scandal around that is, is it stinks to high heaven. Um, again, now, now the government owns the shares again and the government's passing them out to, to friends and family of powerful people in the government, it appears at least partially. And we, I don't think we have time to get into that, but it's, it's, it's still happening even in Iceland. And I think, uh, I was saying to her just now, I think, unfortunately, the, the, the public is, the public is who needs to uh, protest these things to fix them. But the public often loses interest because these cases are so abstract, you know, like, if, if, if I break into your house and steal your computer, you go to the police and you demand, you know, you know, you say, do you have any leads? You know, do you, can you find this for me? But if I go into your pension fund and steal something that's you know, 20 times, you don't ever even notice that. Um, we, we've never lived, let me put this point to you. We've never lived in a world without a high level of financial, uh, financial corruption, financial fraud. We know, we don't even know what world we could have because we've never really, fought it the way we could. We, we fight it in cycles, but notice we always go after things after they've collapsed. Who was going after FTX, uh, what a month, six weeks ago? Nobody. We, and you know, so, so, so and some of these fraudsters are lucky enough to outgrow the fraud and for the fraud to become a company that works. 
right? Um, I really like this this tagline for the fraud to become a company. What was the the thing? Uh, fake it until you make yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Uh, you know, a lot of the world works that way, unfortunately. And, yeah. um, and but maybe fortunately, maybe that's how it's supposed to work. But I don't, I don't like what, so. One more FTX parallel, which so imagine if FTX, if those FTT, those junk tokens that FTX issued, imagine if that was the whole stock market of your country was oh. just FTT. All your pension funds legally had to, you know, they, they're going to be 50% equity or whatever. It's, it's something close to that. Um, they're going to have to have 50% of your hard earned salary over many years in that bullshit FTT token, right? That's the Iceland case. So when the stock market loses 97% of its uh, value, guess what happens to our pensions? Guess what happens to our savings? And by the way, personally, I, I, didn't I didn't really trust the I worked for one of the banks and I quit right before the crisis, luckily. But I never bought shares. I didn't really trust the bank shares. However, I put my cash in a, a money market fund, which yielded more than a savings account. But what we learned later was the money market um, debt was these junk satellite companies around each bank holding their shares. So there you go. I was buying the shares and didn't even know it. And it was so deep and profound, basically, as it had permeated every financial aspect of the Iceland uh, financial sector. So there was no way out. I mean, if you wanted to be within the financial system in Iceland, you were basically. Yeah. So it was an FTX case to the extreme, I think. But it still shows that we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Yes. And that's just how the system apparently works. Jared, this has been... A very fascinating story. There is just one thing I'd like to hear a bit more is how does it end? I mean, it's not a happy ending. I'll, I'll give away. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not a very happy ending. Uh, the public was really enraged. Of course, you know, a lot of us, we I also lost, we eventually lost our house as well. And, you know, our pension funds mostly decimated and a lot of our just cash savings, which wasn't much, but also gone. And that, but that was not just us. That was most of our friends and, you know, Anybody outside of, let's say, the top 5% of wealth in the country uh, was suffering like that. Wow, um, that's big. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, this goes to show the importance of banks. I mean, they should be highly regulated entities. And um, regulation is not always seen with a good eye, but it, it can help fight these kind of frauds. Um, yeah, but the regulation has to be smart. You know, it has to be looking for frauds. It has to be looking for crimes and trying to take them down. It can't be about checking boxes. And since 2008, we just got a lot more boxes to check and everyone's complaining. And I don't blame them for complaining. It's, it's, it's silly. It's a waste of time. But there's yeah. nobody, if you go to any regulator, I challenge you, name me a regulator in the world where if you would go to them today and say, I have a $5 billion uh, fraud here. I just discovered in this bank in your country, you know, who's going to take it? They will walk out that conference room door as fast as they can because th those aren't the people, they don't have a team. You know, when you go, when the, when the police hopefully find out about a kidnapping or murder or something serious, you know, a child is missing, they have people who know how to research those things, know how to handle that situation, know how to do hostage negotiation, all that stuff. Th they're good at that. But regulators don't have a SWAT team for financial crime. Every time something big happens, they have to rediscover. And then what happened to us in Iceland? So, like I said, like the public lost uh, lost everything or, or most of everything. So people were angry. 
So there was, there was people, there was pressure, political pressure on the streets. People wanted change and we had it. So we had enough juice, enough wind in our backs to start investigating, which is the story I told you, finding the letter, finding this stuff. Otherwise that would never have been scratched. We never would know this story. But what happened is after just very few months, like 18 months, they started to dismantle the whole thing. So that today, I don't believe Iceland has any enforcement capability at the regulator. They don't have a special investigation team. We, we built up, we had a great team. We had people who knew how to do email forensics. We had, you know, people, we had, you know, people much better than me doing uh, tr trade analytics and stuff. That's all gone. Um, so there's no prep. There's, and now that there's, now there's been a big banking share scandal this year. I don't know who's investigating that there. They don't have, they've lost all that capability. Jared, such a fascinating story and also so remarkably important for understanding how frauds can be set up and how they keep recurring over time, over and over again. This story is actually at the epicenter of your book. So if people want to hear more about this story, you maybe read your book. Tell us a bit where can they find you? I mean, Iceland Secret is uh, everywhere you can get, get books, of course, Amazon. I did an audible reading for it. So if you like my voice on this interview, I have a little bit of a cold. The reading voice is better. Um, uh, so, so yeah, it's audible. It's amazon.com and your local independent bookstore, probably, probably preferably, but, um, Jared, what a very fascinating story. And I hope people here on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel appreciated hearing it and seeing the parallel with some of the frauds and, and Ponzi schemes that we have seen recently. And also learn some lessons maybe by reading your book and listening to this conversation for the future. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. Thanks.